science story. Huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker. First off today, I want to sincerely thank everyone who came out to support us in celebration of the Story Collider's 8th birthday last Tuesday. It was indeed the fanciest Story Collider to date. I actually wore a dress on stage for the first time ever. Normally my version of formal wear is my Jose Bautista jersey, so this was a big deal. (laughs) Don't expect it to happen again, you gotta pay the big bucks for that. But we had an amazing time, and most importantly, we raised money so we can bring our show to new places. And now we're going to sleep for three days. So if you couldn't make it to Tuesday's event but would still like to contribute to our continued growth, please visit storycollider.org donate, where you can find out more about how you can get involved. Moving on to this week, we're presenting stories about identity, whether it's our external sense of cultural identity or our internal sense of self. Our first story is from Jason Rodriguez. It was recorded at Busboys and Poets in Washington, D.C. in December 2017. The theme that night was Odyssey. My name is Jason Rodriguez, and I am a whole person. But I haven't always been. My elementary school was PS58. It was in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. And Carroll Gardens was a predominantly Irish and Italian neighborhood, so by extension... 58s was a predominantly Irish and Italian school. You can imagine a kid with the last name Rodriguez going to a school like that could run into his fair share of problems. My problems were exasperated by the fact that I was also a giant nerd. I was such a nerd that I was in the G&T program, which stood for gifted and talented, but the other kids called garbage and trash. I was such a nerd that I was the valedictorian of my elementary school, which is just such a bonkers concept that a school would point to a kid and say, this is this school's biggest nerd. But I was a nerd in a lot of other ways too, because I liked a lot of things that most kids my age kind of moved away from. I liked toys, I liked video games, I liked cartoons, but most of all, I loved comic books. I loved The Amazing Spider-Man, I loved The Uncanny X-Men, and I loved every single thing in between. So, because of all these factors, 58s could have been a bit of a problem. But I was cautiously optimistic about junior high school. Junior high school was going to be different. I went to JHS 142. 42s, unlike 58s, was on the border of Carroll Gardens and Red Hook. Red Hook at the time was a predominantly black and Latinx neighborhood, and I was a Rodriguez. (laughs) Additionally, I had deep roots in Red Hook. My parents were raised in Red Hook. All four of my grandparents were raised in Red Hook. Every Friday, I would be in Red Hook on Dykeman Street in my grandma's house, sitting around the table with my mom, my dad, my dad's six siblings, all the cousins. We would eat Bernil, we would tell jokes, we would sing songs, we would sometimes get up and dance, I was confident at this setting in Red Hook. I was at my grandma's house the Friday before I was supposed to start junior high school, and I went outside, and this kid I knew forever, Vito, he was outside playing basketball. 
I knew Bito was also starting at 42, so I joined him. We shot horse for a little bit. And I asked him if he was nervous about starting at 42s. And Bito said, no, not at all. I know a lot of people there already. A lot of my friends from his elementary school, which was 29s, was going to be there. Bito was set. And by extension, I thought I was a Rodriguez with deep roots in Red Hook, and I knew Bito, and Bito knew people, and I was going to be set in junior high school. Yeah, so. <laughs> a couple of days into my junior high school experience, I'm walking home by myself, uh, and a group of kids come up to me, and Bito was with them. And I don't know what I'm expecting, but the kids walk right up to me, and they say, yo, shorty, run your shit, which basically means take everything out of your pockets and give it to them. So I didn't want to sell Bito out, right? I kind of felt bad for Bito, because Bito's trying to fit in, too. So I do the one thing that a true nerd would do. I take out my wallet, pull out my junior high school ID, show it to these kids, and say, you don't have to mug me. My name is Jason Rodriguez. Rodriguez. There's plenty of other kids you can mug. It's fine. We're good. Well, that didn't work. So I tried begging and pleading. That didn't work. So finally, I turn to Bito. It's my trump card. And I say, I know that guy. I know Bito. We're good. And Bito looks at me, and he says, I don't know you, white boy. And that's when I realized that I was too white for the Puerto Rican kids and too Puerto Rican for the white kids. That's also when I realized that these are two very separate identities that I can put inside boxes and take them out whenever I needed them. And this was sort of the way I lived from the time I was mugged by Bito and his friends up until I learned about space cats. And I'll get to that. But <laughs> before we get there, there was another fracturing that was kind of important to the story. So I went to college, Boston University, biomedical engineering student. And within the first couple of weeks, my you know, student advisor, uh, faculty advisor, whatever they call it, uh, invited me and a, a couple of other students to his house for dinner. Right? So we go. He has this gorgeous house in the Boylston neighborhood of Boston, which is the most hoity-toity neighborhood possible. We go up to his apartment. It's on the top floor. He has a wall that's just like a window. He has a globe. He has a telescope. Like this house, this apartment, reminded me of the apartment from Frasier. And I'm only saying that because that was the only point of reference I had at that age of what a fancy apartment should look like. <laughs> we had Indian food. I didn't even know, I never had Indian food. I didn't even know it existed. And I was sitting there eating chicken tikka masala for the first time. And I thought to myself, man, I want this life. At the same time, I started making comics. They were dumb comics. It was a comic about a string that was also a DJ. It was called DJ String Boy. It was just... <laughs> but my college friends, they really loved it. And they laughed, and they wanted to see more of it. And they wanted to spread it around. And it was really exciting. This thing that I've always read was now being created by me, and I could share it. And people liked it. And I said, man, I really want this life. But I never once said, I want both of these lives at the same time. For me, these were two very different lives. So I went forward with my Puerto Rican box, and my white box, and my creative box, and my professional box, and I never used any one of those boxes at once. I always took out whichever fit the moment. So with my professional box, I went, I got my tech job, I got business cards, I got a tie, I gave talks at conventions, I got another degree, I started getting into business development, I was doing great. 
with my creative job, I started doing small press zines, and then small press books, and then mid-press books, and then large press books, conventions, totally different business card. That was going fine. But those two lives never crossed. People from the creative side knew nothing about my technical side, and people from my technical side knew nothing about my creative side. They were completely different identities. So at one point, I started getting a lot, I started getting into doing comic book workshops for kids. And I loved doing it. I loved working with kids, going into schools, all that stuff. I had this friend, Eric. He was doing a science fiction and science um, comic book workshop at an elementary school in DC. And he asked me if I wanted to join. And I said, this sounds great. What we'll do is we'll go in, we'll have a scientist with us. That scientist will teach the kids something, and then we'll you know, teach them how to make that concept into a comic book. And Eric goes, okay, well, I mean, you're the scientist in this situation, right? And I'm like, well, no, I mean, this is my comic book life. This isn't my science life. I can't do both. And he's like, well, honestly, you're going to be there already, and you're free, so. <laughs> so I decided to give it a shot. So I go into this classroom, fifth grade class, and I tell the kids about NASA's Rosetta mission. And I say, check this out. This is so cool. We're going to land a probe on a comet which is like the most awesome thing you've ever heard, right? And class is like, yes. And I go, and then that comet's gonna dig into this, the probe is gonna dig into this comet. How awesome is that? And they're like, wow. And I'm like, and <laughs> then it's just gonna like suck water out until it dies. And that's kind of boring, right? And the kids are like, yeah, it's boring. And I'm like, so why don't you come up with a better fate for this comet? Like, take this and do something with it. So this one kid, his hand shoots up and doesn't wait to be called on. He just says, I wanna do a comic about space cats. And the whole class just laughs. And the girl next to him, she rolls her eyes and she goes, that's Timmy. Timmy is always talking about space cats. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, Timmy, you know, tell me a little about these space cats. Like, what do they do? And Timmy says, he just gets so excited, right? Timmy's just like, space cats, they're flying around and they're catching space mice and they have jetpacks and they got oxygen tanks and, and helmets. And I'm like, Timmy, all right, let's slow down. Okay, let's slow down. Space is big, cats are small, big old oxygen tanks, right? How do they get from point A to point B? And he goes, well, you know, they must refill their tanks. And I wait for a second, and Timmy goes, you know what? They dig into the comets, they pull out the water, they get the oxygen from the water, and they refill their tanks. And I had a transformative experience. Because <laughs> not only was I a scientist who taught Timmy something, and Timmy turned that into something creative, and he took ownership of it. But at the same time, Timmy was simultaneously a cartoonist and a scientist, this fifth grader. And I have never even thought of doing that. <laughs> so I doubled down. I already had this phase where I was doing these like American history comics. I started doing science comics. I started doing science fiction comics. I would go to comic conventions and be on a panel and I would introduce myself as a scientist and a comics creator. And it was just freeing. And I started talking to people at my day job, and I started telling them about the stuff I was doing, and they were really into it. My company actually did like a full-page feature on me in like the company magazine, and it was just all this stress off my body just by taking these two boxes, creator and professional, and putting them together. I had two more boxes to deal with, and I wondered if I can reconcile them. So. Late last year, I started talking to Shout Mouse Press. They're a local publisher. They work with first-time teen authors. And they wanted to do their very first comic book. 
we started talking to the Latin American Youth Center and we applied for a grant through the DC Council of Art and Humanities with three other cartoonists and we won the grant. And the idea was we were gonna spend a month teaching these first generation Latinx teenagers how to make comics. And then we were gonna publish their memoirs in 2018. We're still doing that. So I was very excited about this. I show up to the first day of workshops and the whole group of kids, 16 or so teenagers, a couple of adults sitting in a circle. We have to get up and tell everyone about ourselves and what we wanna do with this workshop, what we expect to get out of it. And it takes me about two seconds to realize I am the only person in this room who doesn't speak Spanish. And additionally, I'm pretty sure most of the kids don't speak English. And I felt like such an imposter. And I just felt like this was a terrible idea. But you know, I pushed on because I believed in the program, I believed in the kids. And so many weeks as we rolled on, we would sit around tables with markers and pens and papers and the kids would tell their stories about their fears, about this current environment, about what it's doing to them and what they want to do to it. Not like violent stuff, but how they want to change it. And it was inspiring. And it reminded me so much of these confident moments when I was a kid, sitting at my grandma's house and listening to my titis and my tios and my, my sister and all these people just talk about who they are and never try to hide it. We finished up the workshop, the kids turned in their pages, they were beautiful. And on the last day, we had to all sit in a circle again and talk about what we learned, what we're thankful for, all that stuff. Everyone gets up and it's my turn. And my plan was to tell them what I just told you about how I saw my family. I maybe got two sentences out because I was crying so hard. And I'm pretty sure the kids knew what I was trying to say. But for me, I was standing there and I realized that, yeah, you know, I helped these kids like find their voice and find a way to tell their story. But these kids helped me so much because for the first time in like forever, I was a Puerto Rican, I was a white kid, I was a scientist, and I was a comics artist. For the first time in a long time, my name was Jason Rodriguez, and I was whole. Thank you. That was Jason Rodriguez. Jason is a writer, editor, educator, and applied mathematician. He spends the first half of his day developing physiological models of human injury. In the evenings, he creates educational comic books about American history, systemic racism, and physics. And on the weekends, Jason tends to visit conventions, museums, libraries, and festivals in order to talk about the unparalleled joy of comic books. Our second story today is from Josh Silberg. The story was recorded in November 2016 at Camp Hess Kramer in Malibu at a show we produced in partnership with SciComm Camp. University bureaucracy has a cruel sense of timing. I was 25. I was standing in my apartment in Vancouver, the first year of my master's degree, and I just picked up my mail and I tossed it onto my IKEA table, that, that black IKEA coffee table that every single university student has. And uh, I noticed peeking out from the, from the stack of flyers was, was a letter. And I had a feeling I knew what was in that letter. And so I, I picked it up and uh, 
I opened the envelope, I ripped it open really, really slowly, and inside was a single piece of paper. And the Simon University, Simon Fraser University logo was on top. And I opened it up really slowly, and I read it, and it was my worst nightmare. I'd been accepted to the PhD program. Uh, I I cried, um, and not because I was happy, but because I couldn't even decide in less than an hour what I could eat for lunch at that point in time, and uh, I didn't know how I could make such an important life decision. I wasn't even sure I wanted to finish my master's, let alone a PhD, and uh, I, I just... I threw that congratulatory letter on the ground and I, I retreated under the covers of my bed and, and I just holed up. And a, f- and a few months prior, I was on cloud nine. I had started a master's program and I just, I couldn't imagine why anybody wouldn't want to do this. And I, to the point where I didn't even want to do it for two years, I wanted to do it for five or more. I wanted to stay there forever. Uh, And I I whizzed through the first two semesters of classes, and I found myself on a tiny float plane heading up to one of the most beautiful places in the world, the Great Bear Rainforest on the central coast of British Columbia. And I sat on a driftwood log looking out over the Pacific Ocean. The moon was lighting it. Everyone else had gone to bed. No one else was around. There were calm waves lapping up at the shore. It's an idyllic, almost tropical-looking white sand beach stretching out for a quarter mile in both directions. And I shivered, and I didn't know what to do. This was my childhood dream, and I was terrified. And so... When you wake up in the morning, when you're up there, typical day starts at about 6 a.m. You get your stuff onto the boat, you put it on there, you go out to our next research site, which is a towering forest of kelp. And the three other researchers would pick up their fishing rods, and they'd tie a lure onto there, and they'd toss it into the ocean, and plunk, 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 whiz, 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 you let the the line go out, it goes slack, it hits the bottom. And I just winged it. I had actually never been fishing before in my life, before starting a master's that had to do with fish. I I just thought it was a cool project. Um, I I didn't even have time to second guess. I, 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 I just kept going. And uh, that's a really, really tough place to be, but you know what, your instincts sort of, you have the fight or flight. It just kicks in and you just do. And by the end of each day, just before dinner, we'd come home and uh, we'd have a a cooler full of fish to dissect. And uh, you know, things things were sort of getting worse and worse for me. And there was one particular day where I realized I, I had a big problem. And we laid out the fish one by one on this wooden table. And uh, there were fillet knives, there were tweezers. And I I put on my imposter mask and uh, I gave instructions to the the other people. And 
we needed backbones, we needed ear bones, and we needed some muscle tissue. And each one of those would go into a little vial. And that glass vial was about half the size of your pinky. And each one would have a label on it for each fish that I would have assigned it. And uh, by about 9 o'clock, we finished that up. We hosed down the table. And everyone else went off to the beach to catch the last of the sunset. And, and I hung back. And all I could think about was them commiserating around the fire about how incompetent I was. And who was that guy that they led into university? And the university probably regrets that. And then I went about my nightly routine back in the laboratory. And each vial had to go into the freezer. And they would put it into a box. And each box had about 100 vials that could go in there. And I put each one into the, into the box one by one. And I thought, OK, I'll organize this by what species of fish are there. No, that's not right. I'll do it by what site they're at. Uh-uh, no. I second guessed, and I third guessed, and then no, my first guess was right, and my no, maybe not. And I just got totally lost in the fog inside of my head. And I faffed about, and I faffed about, and I just didn't know where I was or what I was doing, and untold hours went by of me switching these back and forth and back and forth. And I remember staring at this cream-colored lab bench like, and just zoning out for I don't know how long. And I snapped out of it, and only one thought came through the fog. And I slunk down in the chair, and that was, I don't think I'm cut out for this. At some point, everyone's going to see me for the fraud that I am. And, you know, all my previous successes, chalk that up to fluke and privilege. They're going to figure it out sometime, and there's going to be some repercussions. I finally went to bed around midnight. I was too exhausted to even dream Pretty much the second my head hit the pillow, it seemed like my alarm went off. And at 6 a.m., it was time to do it all over again. And for about five minutes, I, I lied there and I thought, you know, I could feign a physical illness. No one would get mad at me for not doing a day of research because I had the flu. But I was sick. I just didn't know it yet. So flashback to my apartment, and I'm holding that letter, that letter that I dreaded the most. And at that moment, I read those two sentences over and over again. Dear Joshua, we are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted to the Doctor of Philosophy program in the fall term. On behalf of the committee, I wish you continued success at the university. Continued success? Who was that person that applied to do a PhD that was so unfathomable to me. I don't even know if I should be here at all, let alone excelling and moving on in this. And, you know, I hid this from almost everybody. To me, I was failing my family, my supervisor, myself. 
but outwardly I was getting straight A's. That downward spiral is completely silent and that fog is invisible, except to my girlfriend, because when you live in a one bedroom apartment, you can't really hide. And so she started noticing I was changing, that I was different. I was oversleeping. I had stacks and stacks of sticky notes with task lists that were completely, nothing was crossed off on them. And, and I, I cried. I cried a lot. Every night I cried, which is not very typical for me. And uh, at some point, I still didn't realize anything was wrong, but that PhD letter, that was the breaking point because I knew the university was going to need an answer, and I couldn't hide anymore. And at that point, I called my parents back in Calgary. I happened to be going back there for my best friend's wedding, who was getting married near there, and we'd already booked our flights. I sat on the couch of my family home that I grew up in, and I just broke down. I spilled everything, my feeling of failure, that I was just letting everybody down. I still didn't really understand what was going on. How was I going to tell my supervisor I couldn't do a PhD? That was my biggest fear. Um, it was at that point that I went and got help. And uh, I went and talked to a doctor and a therapist. And I exhaled for the first time in months. Because it had a name. I was depressed. And when you put a name on something, there's a power to it. When I was playing around with those vials back in that room, I didn't understand that at all. Not in that moment. I still don't understand what I was doing there. But, you know, all those irrational thoughts, when you give it a name, there's a power to that. And there's a catharsis that came over me. And so I immediately thought, okay, now I can get better. So, you know... How do you get better? You take a pill and you talk to somebody in therapy and then you're better, right? That's how it works. No, that's not how it works. Um, that's unfortunately not how it works. Even when you know what it is, you still don't get better. And so through a combination of all of these different things over the next few months, slowly, slowly that fog started to dissipate and I could think a little bit clearly a little bit more clearly. And I'm really lucky because none of my worst fears came true. And everyone around me was super supportive and empathetic. And the stigma that I had heard about before, which still exists, I didn't experience personally. And I still read that letter every so often, and I've underlined the words, I wish you success at the university. And I realized it wasn't the right time for me to do a PhD, but I've never second-guessed that decision. Thank you. That was Josh Silberg. Josh has researched everything from humpback whales to whale sharks to rockfish. He just couldn't decide on one creature to study. After earning a Master's of Resource and Environmental Management from Simon Fraser University, he joined the British Columbia-based Hakai Institute as the Science Communications Coordinator. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh Silberg. 
If, like Josh, you are also based in British Columbia, we would like to invite you to the launch of our brand new series of shows in Vancouver on May 22nd. We will be at the Fox Cabaret. And our producers, Kayla Glenn and Armin Mordazavi, have a great lineup assembled. You won't want to miss it. Find out more at storycliter.org. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker, that's me, with help from our amazing staff and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Miriam Zaringhollum, Shane Hanlon, Cassie Soliday, Brian Wecht, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Busboys and Poets and Camp Hess Kramer for hosting these shows. And once again, to everyone who joined us at Tuesday night's fundraiser and all of our donors and supporters who enable us to do what we do. Thanks for listening.